Just thinking about the three little bears. That's one of those, it's like the boy who cried wolf. There's just these certain little stories that are just hammered into your brain. And I, and I wonder how much of that is just exposure, how much you're exposed to that story versus does it really have something almost infectious to it? Like, is there something about the three little bears or the boy who cried wolf? Because there's something magical about those stories that just attaches it to you. Or is it just the constant exposure to it? Because I don't remember my mom telling me those stories ever. I don't remember her like sitting me down before bed going like, I'm going to tell you about the three little bears. But you come across it in children's books and cartoons. I mean, so many different things have done their own interpretations and reinterpretations. It's just burned into you. You probably wouldn't even be able to say which version of three little bears was your introduction to it or anything like that. You probably wouldn't be able to say where you even first heard it. It's just always been there. The boy who cried wolf too. The boy, the, the three little bears who cried wolf. I try not to think too much about children, children's stories. I can't say children, children, children. Um, I try not to think about them too much, but with the three little bears, I was thinking about it tonight and just, uh, I didn't know this about it, but it was originally an old woman, not Goldilocks. It was originally about an old woman who breaks into not a family of bears home, but it was just three male, adult male bears who lived together. So the original story, which isn't a Grimm's fairy tale, it seems like one of those things, like I would have assumed that the three little bears was a Grimm's fairy tale, and the original was like, oh, and then the old woman had her eyes pecked out by birds after she stole the porridge, and then she screamed until she died. Like if you read Grimm's, can't talk at all, if you read Grimm's, Grimm's fairy tale, that's how a lot of it is. Like, people talk about that. They're like, oh, have you ever read the stories in the original? This horrible thing happens in the original. A lot of them are just nonsense, and there's a ton of them that you've never even heard of. For whatever reason, certain stories, certain fairy tales took off. For the same reason I'm talking about the Three Little Bears and stuff. You know, for some reason, that just took off. And a memo went out, a psychic memo went out saying, like, everybody's got to know this. Everybody's got to hear this. True for some of the Grimm's fairy tales. But if you read through it, a lot of them, they're just these random stories. And they're very similar. Like a bird flew by and said this. There's not even a moral to them. It's just a story about something happening involving an animal and a person. And then that person dying a horrific death. Then they cut off all of his arms and legs and he bled to death and died. And it's not even that. It's, it's really blunt. It's really short. Curt. Curt is the word I'm looking for. It's like stated very curtly. It's just short. Oh, and then this happened to his body and he died. But I would have assumed the Three Little Bears is one of those that maybe had its origins in that. Like maybe the bears ate the girl. But it, it wasn't a Grimm's fairy tale. It's, I guess it's from the 19th century, the early 19th century. And the original was just, just a guy wrote it. And it became popular then. The original was apparently popular in its day. Which is confusing to me as well. Like I could see it being unpopular originally. And then somebody tweaked it a little bit. 
they tweaked the three little bears or the whatever. What's it even called? The three little is it called the three little bears? I'm I'm even forgetting what it's called. Because that doesn't make sense to me all of a sudden. Three little bears. The three bears. What's even the, what's it even called? But I can see if somebody like took that idea. Oh, it's an old woman who breaks into these three male bears' house, eats their food and sleeps in their bed, and they kill her. They bite off her fingers and she screams until she dies. I could see it if they took that and were like, let's make this more palatable. But no, the, the original didn't have any kind of gruesome end. It wasn't a Grimm's fairy tale. Some guy just came up with it. And it's funny, though, too, because it's like an old woman. Like, what kind of makes the story what it is? It's this little girl. She's a burglar and a thief. But it's this idea of just this little girl. It might as well be Little Red Riding Hood. That's another one. Or, you know, what in particular about that one just infected people's minds to where it was like, we need to know this story. Everybody, we need to teach kids this story. Oh, what's something kids need to know? Oh, this. Little Red Riding Hood, The Three Little Bears. Is it Little Bears? What the fuck's it called? The Three Bears? I'm, I'm going to look it up. I haven't used a lifeline in a really long time. Yeah, The Three Little... Goldilocks and the Three Bears. I guess that's what it's called. Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Yeah, I don't know where I came up with uh, the three little bears. I feel like maybe it's called that somewhere. Goldilocks and the three bears. But anyway, uh, with that one, you know, it's funny to imagine it being an old woman. And supposedly the guy who tweaked it, like, because not long after it came out, like maybe a decade, couple decades after it came out, I think, some guy was like, I'm going to do a version for kids. And I'm going to change the old woman to a little girl. And he said the reason was not to make it more palatable to kids. He did that because he felt there were too many stories about old women, which there are. A lot of old stories are about old women, old stories about old women. A lot of them are about hags, not just witch stories either. Talking about Grimm's fairy tales, you know, I, I don't know what the numbers are. I haven't crunched the numbers. But looking back at when I went through it and read a bunch of it, I'm like, yeah, you know, it does seem like a lot of it was about old women. The crone or the hag, just this insane old woman. It's funny to think that st people felt like, oh, yeah, that's a, that's a good character in these stories, an insane hag. But some guy, he tweaked it. He didn't, he didn't make the hag into a little girl just to make kids enjoy it more. He did it because he felt there were just too many stories about old women. And the thing about these these major stories, these major kids' stories, these fairy tales, is they don't always have an obvious moral. Like there is a, a kind of a built-in moral to Goldilocks and the Three Bears where it's like, okay, don't break into somebody's home and eat their food and sleep in their bed. Don't be a burglar. Don't be a creep. Don't be a thief. But it's never stated outright. It's never stated outright in the story, don't do this. It's just she did this. And it's so distracting. Like it distracts from any moral of the story because it's like, 
three, you know, human, human, I was going to say humanitarian, three anthropomorphic bears, three uh, humanoid bears live in a house and eat food, eat porridge out of bowls. I still don't know what porridge is. I think I know. I think it, I'm not going to say what I think it is. I'd rather not say what I think it is. But in my mind as a kid, I'd never seen porridge. I'd never had porridge. So I imagined it was just top ramen. You know, it sounds like a cute little kid thing, but to this day, I still when I hear porridge, I imagine top ramen and I imagine it's really good. I imagine Goldilocks has these three bowls of top ramen in front of her. And I think that's just because my brain, like that's all I could relate to. The idea of this hot food in a bowl. I could only think of soup or ramen or something. I didn't know what porridge was. Who eats porridge? Most people probably only hear porridge through the, the three bears. But even though like, you know, she eats it and everything and she's not supposed to, it's never said outright. It's never said like, oh, she shouldn't be doing this. And what ends up happening, I'm pretty sure, is she just runs. She just leaves. The bears confront her and she's just gone. They don't kill her. They don't, she doesn't get any kind of punishment. So the moral isn't stated explicitly. It's not like a lesson for kids about not doing that. It's just, oh, this happens. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's funny to me though, because they, they changed the hag to a little girl. And apparently, I mean, I'm just stating facts here. This is just a fact show. Trivia. I'm just stating trivia here. But originally, her name wasn't even Goldilocks. It was Silverhair. That sounds like a stupid joke I would make. Goldilocks wasn't originally called Goldilocks. She was an old woman. And then they turned her into a little girl and called her Silverhair. Was she a towhead? A little girl with silver hair, like platinum hair. Her hair is... You know, so blonde that it looks silver. I imagine that's what they were going for. But that would mean she has to be a towhead or an albino. Which would be a really funny variation. Like, uh, Goldilocks and the Three Bears, but Goldilocks is an albino. The silver hair was her original name once, once they turned the, the woman in the story into a little girl. Funny, too, that they chose a girl at all. They chose an old woman, and they chose a little girl. It seems like something you'd expect more of a little boy. Like, oh, a little boy got too adventurous, too curious, and he went into a bear's house and ate their food. But there's also this aspect to it where, you know, she wants the... the I'm just analyzing the most famous fairy tales. But there's also the um, the whole part about... Finding like the, the one that's just right. Oh, you know, she tried this porridge and it was too hot. She tried this porridge and it was too cold. She tried this porridge and it was just right. You know, it, that's one of the main, that's one of the main beats of the story. It's one of the main parts of the entire story is just finding the, that's like the most suspenseful part of the story. It's like, oh, she came across these bowls of porridge and she needed to try them all to find the one that was the right temperature. And I have to say, it's really hard and rare 
to eat something and have it be the perfect temperature. I was actually thinking about that earlier tonight because I heated up this Trader Joe's burrito. Heated it up and I figured out the perfect way to heat it. It's not, the recommended heating times are never perfect. So they're a good guideline, but they're never perfect. But I, I finally figured out like the, the perfect way to get it thoroughly hot. I, I finally figured out how to make these burritos perfectly hot the thing is though i mean you have to of course let it cool down but there's it's, it's i can't find that sweet spot because <clears throat> when you heat something up and you get it too hot you always want to eat it you'll bring it with you you'll you'll set it down in front of you you're like oh i'm gonna give it a minute you give it 10 seconds and it's not even this ravenous hunger. It's not even. It's not even this uh, gluttony where it's like I just gotta you know stuff my face with anything in front of me. Like m more often than not, I'll heat something up, and I don't really even feel compelled to eat it right away. I'm just kind of like, oh yeah, you know, this is gonna be good whenever I have it. I don't feel like I have to eat this right now, but it's in front of me for ten seconds, and I'm already eating it, already burning my mouth. And I don't mind a little burn because I think, you know, going back to the three bears when it's just right, just right for me is a little bit of burn. Because if there's not a little bit of burn, like it, it's just lukewarm. There's a, a sharp drop off as far as what's good, hot and just lukewarm. And so it has to have a little bit of burn, but if it's too hot... You know, there's a lot of burn, and you can't have that either. You don't even taste it. I mean, many times with these burritos, I'll just go right into it. And I'm like, this is too hot for me to even enjoy, but I can't stop. But it's not a compulsion either. I'm not like, I have to eat this. I got to eat this. I just can't really stop. I'm just, I'm already doing it. This program is already running. I've just got to eat it. But yeah, it... Like when I do sit and let it cool, and I, I never let anything sit for that long, maybe five minutes at the most. But if it's even, you know, anything less than hot, it's not good. A lukewarm burrito sucks. And, uh, but it, the drop off, like it, things become lukewarm so suddenly. And it's not just right. It needs to have a little burn. But anyway, I was just thinking about that. How I was just like, yeah, you know, it's really hard to get food just the right hot. Right, just the right temperature is the more eloquent way of saying that. Just the right hot. Because it just it becomes too lukewarm very quickly. But the window of time between too hot and lukewarm is very small. Just suddenly it sucks. But the story, you know, it's, it's about like finding, it's, you know, I hate to even get this way about it, but, you know, there's obvious, I'm sure Buddhists teach classes about the, how it's, oh, it's the middle path. You know, because I mean, you'll see that in Eastern teachings, like he who is impervious to both hot and cold has attained enlightenment. You know, the middle path, Gotama Buddha, you know, oh, living the ascetic lifestyle isn't the way, but living the gluttonous lifestyle isn't the way, 
find the balance and it's so obvious you know you don't you don't even want to say it's it's a, some sort of buddhist idea it's just obvious in everything it's something that anybody can figure out that everybody has figured out that, oh yeah strike a balance find this sort of middle ground but it is a big teaching in in buddhism and uh, I'm sure that there's many, I'm sure there's like gurus who are like, I'm going to tell you the story of the three little bears. And people laugh. Oh, it's a, it's a master talking about the three little bears. But it's in there, you know, the idea that, oh, find the one that's just right. Don't eat the porridge ramen. Don't eat the top ramen that's too hot. Don't eat the top ramen that's too cold. Because you can't, you won't enjoy it. It might hurt you. It might burn you. If it's cold, it's gross. So there's a middle one. There's a middle path. It's got a little bit of both. It's in between both. But that's a big part of it. Yeah, you know, it's a big part of the story. Like I said, it's like it's like one of the major beats. It's, it's suspenseful. Oh, she's. Now she's going to try this porridge. What's that going to be like? Oh, she said, she says it's too cold. You know, that, that's like a, like a plot line. Um, but uh, beyond that, though, like nothing is really taught in it. The Boy Who Cried Wolf, there is a more obvious moral to that. And that's a good one. You know, no matter how common, no matter how cliche it is to hear the boy who cried wolf, for people to just use that phrase, the boy who cried wolf. And it's kind of amazing that you can just say boy who cried wolf and everybody immediately understands you. That's what's amazing about these psychic infections, these stories, where it's just everybody's going to know what you're talking about. And there's older versions of that too. You know, boom among baby boomers. I think it's more fun to call them baby boomers. I, I really didn't like the change where people just started saying boomers. Oh, uh, oh okay, boomer. You know, I, I really didn't like that change because it's fun to call these old people baby boomers. It makes it, it makes it sound like they're babies. But with baby boomers, you know, they grew up on Leave it to Beaver. And there was the character Eddie Haskell. He was, a be I believe he was Beaver's friend. And Eddie Haskell was this kid who was just a nightmare, just a nightmare human being. But he was really nice to the parents, overly nice. Like they didn't trust him. He was, he was too nice. He was too fake. He was fake nice. But it used to be you could say, oh, he's kind of an Eddie Haskell about somebody and everybody would know what you meant. That's what the boy who cried wolf is like. You can say the boy, oh, the boy who cried wolf. Everybody immediately knows what you mean by that. And, the, you know, there is a lesson in there, which is just, if you complain or you, you know, try to make people worry, if you really do anything to disturb people over and over again and it's nothing, they're not going to care or believe you when it's something and the idea of in the the boy who cried wolf is that he's he's told these lies so many times he's, he's just lied and said the wolf is coming so many times they, they don't actually believe him when it comes uh, 
it's kind of funny to imagine though that uh it's not that they don't believe him they just don't care anymore because i think that that's that's part of the story that doesn't really get talked about as much and that i experience more often it's not even that i don't believe people it's that i just don't care anymore when someone just says something over and over again oh this because what it is is this i've been on this this thing been on this this thing I've been on this this thing a lot. I can't stop. I'm just, it's stuck in my head. It's all I think about is this, this. And what that's like, it's, you know, when I was getting into meditation, I was listening to this meditation master, a med, a med master, talk about, you know, what you can do to kind of, you know, what you can do to kind of focus during meditation and that's the, every time a thought pops in your head, you know, you're trying to, you know, cease all thought. And when a thought pops in your head, just instead of going with it, which I think is a good technique too, it's a good something. Sometimes like just let your thoughts go, just watch your thoughts go, let your mind race and observe it from a whole new perspective. I've done that in meditation and I, I think that's a, an interesting variation. But, you know, the idea is also sometimes try to cease all thought as best you can at the very least slow your thoughts down and i had that experience of my like i I would notice a thought trying to creep under the door it was like a mouse creeping under the the crack at the bottom of the door and you would you would see a thought sneak into your head and then another one and you don't realize that all day that's what your mind is doing, and it's doing it very rapidly. Thought, 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 this, 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 this. You know, that's what your brain is doing, but it's doing it rapidly. And you don't even realize how it's happening. Like part of it is what you're seeing and hearing around you, what someone said to you, what you saw happen. A lot of it's that. A lot of it's, you know, the stimuli around you things you're coming your senses are coming into contact with but when it's just your your inner thoughts that are just coming to you that aren't prompted by anything in your environment it's easy to not realize how many of those are going on at any given time and where they come from and how they're linked together and i remember having one particular meditation session where I just kind of let my thoughts go, like go. I, I'm just going to let them come. I'm not going to try to stop them. And I realized they were all hyperlinked together, most of them at least. Like I, I was thinking about this kid, and the most random thoughts would come to me. Like I was thinking about this kid who I had seventh grade art class with. I had never had any other classes with him. I didn't know him before this, but I had this class with this kid. And uh, he popped into my head. He moved away the next year. He wasn't a friend of mine. He was just this kind of dorky, nerdy, nice kid. A dorky, nerdy, nice. A DNN. But this dorky, nerdy, nice kid, you would never say a bad word about him. That's not an insult to call him dorky, nerdy, and nice. He's dorky, and he's nerdy, and he's nice. It's not even an insult to call him dorky and nerdy. It's just what he was. But he, he had one class with him one semester in one year. And I, I'd never known him before that, never knew him after. He moved away. But he just popped into my head. But then I remembered that 
apparently his mom went to my friend's mom's gym and they were kind of friends. And then I started thinking about that. So there's the link right there. Now I'm thinking about this other aspect of this kid. And that got me thinking about my friend's family. And that got me thinking about this. And I just kind of watched my thoughts. And every time I would have a thought, after it would leave me and go to the next thought, I would think about what got me there. And it's hard to do. You know, because you're not, you know, it's, it's a, you can't really separate yourself from your thoughts enough to do that most of the time. But in meditation, I was able to do that. Like, what was, what linked me to this? And your mind, it's, it's like having a ton of Wikipedia ads, or they might as well be ads, but Wikipedia articles open and, uh, you know, your brain, you know, if you don't stop it, is like that where when you have a million tabs open, you have a million Wikipedia tabs open, and you got there, each one got there from somewhere. Each one was linked on another page you were looking at. And each one of those is kind of like a thought. And so, yeah, you do have random thoughts, but many of them are prompted by something. This reminds me of this, which reminds me of this, which gets me thinking of this, which reminds me of this, which gets me thinking of that. Um, but anyway, uh, something got me going on meditation and thoughts. See, this is what I'm talking about. Like when you're telling a story or talking or just rambling like this, you're doing the same thing where like something got me here. Like this show is a good example, like how unfocused and chaotic this show is, but this is really how the mind works. (laughs) this show is really how the mind works Uh, it is though like i mean the reason i jump all over the place is because like it's hyperlinked together and it's a lot like wikipedia (laughs) where you abandon the things that got you there oh i opened this and i'm gonna look at this tab i'm gonna look at this page i'm feeling more passionate about this now I opened this new tab, and even though I was going to read that whole article, now that I'm on this tab, I'm just going to read about this until I see something else that I want to jump to. And so you just like ride whatever whatever your attention grabs hold of. You just kind of have to go with. And you know, in that situation, like TV Tropes is a website I like. I look at TV Tropes once a year, end up with like 80 tabs open. Oh, I'm going to read them all at some point. Next thing I know, three months have gone by and I've just been using this web browser that's slowed to a crawl because I've, I've had 80 tabs open for the last three months. But you're always like, oh, I'm going to go back and read that. And I've tried to do that. Like sometimes I'll, I'll have a bunch of tabs on a wiki page open and I'll be like, oh, I'm, no, I'm, I'm actually going to go back to the one that got me here and try to read it again. I'm going to go back to that and finish that before I move on to the next one. You're bored. You were interested a second ago, but now that you have the new tabs open, you're bored. That's kind of how it is, like, just talking about stuff, too. Like, on here, like, I'm like, oh, I was talking about this, but now I'm talking about that, but I'm more passionate about that now. And that happens socially, too. That happens in group conversations. I think everybody's had the experience where they're talking with a group of people, and they're talking about something that links to the next thought, which becomes the new topic. And then if you try to say something about what they were talking about just a minute ago, they're like, oh, we've moved on from that. Sometimes people can be very rude about it. 
Oh, you're still talking about that? We're talking about this. You're talking about that? We're talking about this. They'll even shame you for it. Oh, you went back to the topic that we were talking about 30 seconds ago. We've moved on. But the reason is because the passion has shifted. That's what they say. The passion has shifted. The conversation has shifted to this. This is what we care about now. Could be you by yourself online. Oh, this link, this Wikipedia pa page, page, this Wikipedia page, uh, this one, uh, it, this is where what we care about now. Your thoughts do the same. Oh, I've moved on to this. This is what I care about now. Um, but then that idea of like figuring out where your thoughts come from, how they link together. In meditation, I'm able to do it. I'm able to do it on here. Sometimes I find the thread that linked all this. Like if I just keep going, I'll probably remember what got me thinking about meditation. I know I was talking about Buddhism and the three little bears. Uh, but, uh, you know, and then when you try to go back to it, like you don't remember, you just stutter, you stammer, there's no momentum. It's, it's about momentum. It's not just passion and caring, it's momentum. Uh, but uh, I, don't know, I feel like I had more to say about these fairy tales. I don't want to just be a, a fairy tale analyst, analysist, analyst. Uh, but, you know, this is where I am, just analyzing fairy tales. But thoughts and meditation, I don't, I don't know. I, I think I had something I wanted to say about that, too. See, I have something I want to say about everything. And then, and then when you try to go back and remember it, you lose your current train of thought, and you're just left with nothing. Like right now, I, I have nothing. I had all these things to say, and all of a sudden, I just have nothing. Um, I guess just to wrap up, like the way thoughts are linked together... When you're going about your day, that's what's going on in your mind. This makes me think of this, which makes me think of this. And then you get stuck in loops. There are a lot more loops. Like people would be happier if their brain was just like free flowing with a new thought every second. If it was just like, oh, this kid, he makes me think of this. But usually what they're thinking is, she said this about me. 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 She said this, 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 You know, that's a lot of what's going on in people's brains. The rumination, the obsessive thought, this machine just feedbacking in on itself. And that's where the problems are. Because I had a job in a warehouse. It was an assembly line type job. 10 hours a day. It was like, a, you worked four days a week, 10 hours a day. So you got three day weekends. But they put me on this assembly line type thing. And it was so boring. But I didn't mind it because one of the only jobs where I've just been able to think. Like all I had to do is take books, put them in this cardboard rack. They'd go on to the next person who'd put a different set of books into the rack. And uh, since I didn't have to think about anything, my mind was just like free flowing. Like I would come up with fantasy. I would come up with fiction. I would come up with stories in my own head and I would revisit them. 
I was like kind of creating worlds in my own brain and it really made the day go by. And so if everybody was doing that, it'd be fine. Oh, this thought onto the next thought. Oh, that makes me think of this onto the next thought. Problem is, is that a lot of people, it's not just they're, they're thinking all day uninterrupted. They're thinking repetitiously. It's not this, that, oh, oh, this too. That too. Oh, th you know, it's just this, 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 you know, it's just that over and over again. And it's usually whatever's bothering them currently. It's whatever the, the concern of the day is. Just repeat that over and over again. And so learning meditation, you know, part of that is kind of recognizing how your thoughts are linked together, how to slow them down, if not stop them, which is hard and rare in my experience, hard and rare, but it's, it's also kind of like learning how to direct them as well, because you have to direct them to some degree, otherwise you do get stuck in those loops and ruts. And uh, I don't know, I, I want to get back to the stories. I want to get back to the fairy tales. Never gonna, If I don't talk about them now, I'm never going to talk about them again. Old Silverhair. Her name was Old Silverhair. I don't know, for whatever reason, like those, those get repeated. And you just kind of accept it. As a kid, like I was, I heard or I was told Goldilocks and the Three Bears. And I just kind of accepted it. I wasn't like, why are you telling me this? Why do I hear this everywhere? I just kind of accepted that that was something I needed to hear over and over again. I accepted that, you know, Rumpelstiltskin was something that needed to be burned into my brain. Oh, I better know this. And I don't question it. I didn't question why these stories were told. I didn't question why the boy who cried wolf, you know, was, uh, I guess, I, I think pro what probably got me going on this was the not caring thing, but I don't remember how that related to meditation. Because what I was going to say a while back is just, you know, the, the, one of the stories of uh, the boy who cried wolf, it, it, or one of, the, one of the ways I see it is not just like, oh, someone's going to, you know, sound the alarm. They're going to pull the fire alarm so many times that we're not going to know when there's a real fire, which does happen. In school, They schools themselves actually do it. It's not just the kid who occasionally pulls the fire alarm just to screw with people. He's not the boy who cried wolf. The school is the boy who cried wolf. Because what they do is they have you do drills, and they don't announce them. When I was in school, they often didn't announce that they were doing a fire drill. The alarm would just go off and they'd be like, everybody's got to go. Everybody's got to go out to the field and, and get into their section. They got to go find their teacher. What they would do is they would have your teacher hold up a colored piece of paper and you were supposed to stand with them. And I think the colored piece of paper signaled that everybody was there. I think it was a way of signaling that, like, oh, everybody's accounted for. I don't remember, though. 
But the schools themselves were the boy who cried wolf because like they would have these drills and that was usually the only time you ever heard the fire alarm that when the fire alarm went off, you're just like, oh, it's a drill. Boy who cried wolf, always screaming wolf, it's a drill. But the other, the other side of it is not that you don't believe him anymore, it's that you stop caring. And I've noticed that with people I know, people I've known, there's a lot of them. And it's just that they, they bring an issue to you. I mean, I experience it a lot at work. This person's complaining about this, so they're bothered by this, they're upset about this. It's not that I don't believe them, it's not that I don't believe it happened, it's just that you're bringing so many problems to me that I don't care anymore. When, it, when it's going to actually be a big problem, I don't care anymore because you've worn me down. You've tired me out, you've exhausted me, and I just don't care. People in your personal life, you have friends, people who just, they're always complaining about something. And you reach a point where you're like, I don't even know if this matters. They come to you with a, an even bigger problem and you're like, I don't even know if this matters because they, they've made everything else out to be such a big deal that I truly don't know if this is a big deal to them or not. I don't know if this is going to matter in a day. So the boy who cried wolf, it's not that there was no, it's not that uh, he was a liar. It's just that nobody cares anymore. Nobody cares if there is a wolf or not. We're just tired of him saying that. We're just tired. Of, we're exhausted by the boy who cried wolf. We're just totally exhausted by him. And, uh, you know, it's, it's often what produces that, like what produces this raising of the, the alarm, this, this, Oh, this, because that's what that's what the boy who cried wolf is about. It's about it's a little boy who's going this. Oh, guys, it's this, and then eventually he says it's this, and they just don't think about it. They don't care. It doesn't phase them. But it's kind of like learning how to control that. Like, is that thing you're obsessing about today? Is it? Does it need to be broadcast? Does it need to be addressed? And if you do address it, how is that going to impact future issues? It's pick your battles. You know, is today the day where I need to make a big deal out of this? But when you're stuck in that loop, you turn everything into a big deal. Oh, it must be a big deal. I'm thinking about it. This? It must be a big deal. I wouldn't be obsessing about it all day if it wasn't. Well, if you go to bed and wake up and, you know, go about your day... It's probably not as big of a deal. Probably not that big of a deal. If the, if the boy who cried wolf just went to bed and woke up the next day, he'd probably realize there was no wolf. He was seeing shadows. The boy who saw shadows. And so learning how to control that. Having a filter. Learning how to, you know, recognize when and where and how to say something. That's kind of built into the boy who cried wolf. I think people understand that. People understand the lesson there. One, don't lie about things because then when it's true, they won't believe you. 
But also pick your battles. Pick your wolves. You know, maybe the, the boy who cried wolf saw a ton of wolves. Maybe every time he screamed about wolves, he was actually seeing a wolf. But most of the time it was non-threatening. Most of the time you didn't need to worry about it. You didn't need to scream about it. You didn't need to be the town crier. Kid thinks he's a town crier. If a village ever needed a town crier, it's that village. Because you need somebody who, who's in a position to actually warn people, oh, hey guys, a wolf is actually out there. The boy who cried wolf is a self-appointed town crier. Who elected you? Is that an elected position? How do you get chosen to be the town crier? Maybe you have a loud voice. You're, you know, in the know. Well, this guy's in the know and his voice really carries. Let's elect him to the town crier. Let's appoint him town crier. Was it, was it one of those old trades that your dad did and your granddaddy did? Do you become the town crier? Town crier? Town crier? Because it's a family profession? Is it, is it like that? Or is it merit-based? Was the town crier always the loudest guy in the town? Was he always the guy with the best information? I don't know. How do you how do you do you elect yourself? Do you just do that one day? Do you just stand at the entrance of the town, walk through the town, and just shout things out, let them know? You know, people do. We see people do that now. I mean, you see people on social media. Um, some people are just that way in person. Like years ago, I remember hanging out at a bar my friend worked at, and the owner of the bar would hang out there sometimes middle-aged woman and one time I was just sitting at the bar drinking and she was just there hanging out sitting next to me the owner and she was just scrolling through her phone I think they call it doom scrolling I think they call it doom scrolling and she was just doom scrolling news articles and, and every few seconds she go oh my god a plane crashed in Africa and all the kids died Oh, a school bus turned upside down and all the kids died. She just kept sharing all these horrible news stories, just these real downers. And I could tell, though, that she felt like she was sharing necessary information. Like, she almost felt like she was doing us a service. And I've seen people do this countless times. It's what a lot of people do. It's like, oh, just so you know, a school bus flipped upside down and all the kids died. I thought you needed to know that. She was kind of trying to act like she, she thought she was the town crier. She was the bar crier. Sitting at the bar just being like, hey, just so you know this bad thing happened in another part of the world. Just so you know this really bad thing happened. We should all be sad and worried and upset. You know, we all have a little town crier in us. We hear the news and we share the news. Hear the, in one ear, out the mouth. But you can see some people really gravitate toward it. They're like, I'm a source of information. You see it with social media. You know, people on Twitter or Facebook, anywhere, where they're just like, oh yeah, you know, I'm the guy who tells you things. I'm the guy who finds things out and tells you things. So maybe the, the old town crier, O-L-D-E, town crier, maybe that was something you just started doing. Some guy just decided to start doing that. 
Just decided to start doing it. Just decided to start telling people things, shouting things. And then another village was like, you know, hey, it makes sense to have a guy like that. It makes a lot of sense. Or maybe just another guy in another village was like, oh, that town has a guy like that. I'm going to start doing that. You know, what, at what point did that become, you know, common? Was that something that just naturally evolved? Did, like, tribes, did primitive people have their own version of a town crier? And it just d developed with time into an actual thing, what they call a thing? Or was, uh, was that, like, a later invention? Like, oh, yeah, we don't have that, but let's, let's have somebody who does that. And for that matter, where'd the town crier get his info? You know, did he have a specific person who came to town and told him? I guess he would just, if he was like standing at the entrance to the town and just greeting people, he would hear a lot of news, hear a lot of gossip. But was there a system for it? I know I could look all this up, but it's just fun to imagine. It's fun to ask these questions. Was there a system a town crier system where it's like, oh, he gets his information from this guy. This guy comes from the other town to this town and tells him what's happening in the other towns. You know, did it work that way? I don't even know. How organized was it? Um, the, uh, I don't know. And then, and then at some point, though, that just stopped. Obviously, technology played a role. But I'd be curious when the town crier phenomenon died out. You know, where there's still towns with guys where it was like, they still have one. And did some towns have to tell their town crier, yeah, we need you to stop doing that. We, we just, we've decided we don't need you to do that anymore. You're annoying. You know, at some point did they say that to him? Or did it just kind of naturally die out? Did some of them get the hint? Did some town criers, like, get the news that, oh, we're not going to have town criers anymore? And that was their final announcement? The self-destructive final statement of the town crier? You know, from here forward, there shall be no town criers. I bid you adieu, some shit like that. Did they basically fall onto their own sword by announcing that town criers were no longer going to be around? Were there some old men who had been town criers their entire life and nobody had the heart to tell them to stop doing it and they just did it until they died and nobody replaced them? What happened? What happened to all the town criers? Well, everybody became a, a version of one. We're all, we're all town criers here. An entire village of town criers. There was an entire town and everybody in it was one. Like that's the village where they all come from. Are they trained? You get trained to be a town crier. I went to the I went to this town where all the town criers are born and they train people other people to, to be town criers. They got the best program there. Oh, I'm going off to school. I'm going off to this other city and I'm gonna learn how to be a town crier. I'm going to be certified. Was there any kind of certification? I could find all this out, but I'm not going to look it up. Did anybody ever just kill the, the town crier? 
I'm sick of this guy. I'm sick of him always telling me things. I'm sick, of, I'm sick of this guy going around yelling. We don't need this guy. I wonder, there must have been a, a few murders of the town crier. Like some drunk was just like, I'm just going to kill him. I'm just going to beat him up. It's always seemed like something that was undesirable. It's always seemed like it was uncool. Like you'd have to be a dork to be the town crier, right? I would imagine you'd have to be a dork. Have to be a dork. You have to be a dork to be the town crier. That's what I imagine. Um, like, was there anybody who was really cool? Maybe the first one. Maybe that's why it took off. There was a guy who was just really cool. And people were like, yeah, they, we should have a guy like that. We should have our own guy like that. You know, maybe that's how stories were told. The town storyteller. You have to figure, though, I mean, you know, what kind of standards were even in place? How do you even evaluate things? I've talked about this before, how growing up pre-internet, people could just say things. And you had to use your intuition and judgment. Someone would just tell you a story in 1995, and you just had to be like, I have to evaluate whether or not that's true. There's no way for me to verify I remember talking about this on here because I used the example of these urban legends, specifically about famous people. Like my neighbor, this kid, I, I talked about this before, but this, this kid, my neighbor, one time he's like, oh, my cousin went to a Marilyn Manson concert. It was right after Marilyn Manson got famous. He's like, he went to a Marilyn Manson concert and there was a guy in the mosh pit with a bunch of needles just sticking people, like shooting people up with drugs. And I remember just in my mind, I was like, that didn't happen. You know, either you're lying or your cousin was lying. But your cousin didn't go to a Marilyn Manson concert, and there was just a guy with syringes filled with drugs just shooting people up in the mosh pit against their will. That's always been a, a popular urban legend. I talked about it because there was that concert maybe a year ago, two years ago, a bunch of people died at a concert, and the initial story that went around was there was a guy with a syringe shooting people up. And it made me think, like, I'm like, was that a common urban legend about mosh pits and concerts? Because you would hear a lot of stories about concerts. Oh, this happens at concerts. It was kind of thought of as anything can happen, and, and that means bad things can happen. We should be scared of concerts, scared of the mosh pit. Are you scared of the mosh pit? Well, listen to this. Scared yet? Guy with syringes shooting people up. But when that kid told me that story, I remember just being like, oh, that's bullshit. I just knew it was bullshit, and it was. But you had to do that with so many different things. You know, Yeah, you were exposed to the news and periodicals and magazines. But... Uh, you know, when it came to just general stories, you, you didn't know how to look it up. Like, even if somebody told you something and there was a way to verify it in a periodical, you wouldn't know where to look. You wouldn't know, you wouldn't be able to watch it on the news. Like, oh, hey, on the news last night I saw this. 
you can't go back and watch what was on the news last night. It's not the internet where you can just go to YouTube and rewatch it. You just kind of had to go, oh, was it? And use your judgment. When you heard stories, you just had to kind of go, oh, do I believe that or do I not believe that? And so I imagine that was the case with the town crier. Like, do I believe him or do I not? Does that sound right or doesn't it? And there was no way to evaluate him. Oh, he's a town crier. He must know. Was he ever evaluated? Did anybody ever say, like, let's see how good of a job. Let's, let's get some fact checkers here. Let's get some fact checkers. Fact checkers. Let's get some fact checkers to see if this town crier is really telling the truth. Because he could actually, if, if he was a devious town crier, what they call a devious town crier, he could tell people anything he wants. He could tell a lot of true stories, but occasionally sneak in utter bullshit. And what could you say? Oh, I heard that. He could tell you, I heard that. I was told that. But maybe people were more truthful. I don't know. Maybe because it was harder to look things up and verify things, there was just a greater tendency to try to be true. But then you're still hearing things through the grapevine. You're still playing the game at telephone. A lot of town crier talk. Oh, dude, like the, the town. I'm, I'm a town crier. I mean, I might as well be a town crier doing this right now, except the difference is it's just here's some mundane bullshit from the distant past that nobody's ever going to care about. Oh, here's something I remembered about a kindergarten class that I wasn't even in. Oh, I, I found out the other day that there was a third kindergarten class that I forgot existed with a different teacher. Isn't that the most interesting thing you've ever heard? Um, I'm like a town... Maybe there were people like me where they were just like, I gotta talk. I gotta talk. And, and you just share nonsense. Because there's podcasts of people who are like, we're going to talk about current events and break them down. We're going we're gonna to tell you what's really going on. And then there's stuff like this, which is just... No relevance to anybody or anything. Just talking. Just nothing. Were there town criers like that? Were there towns who preferred that? Oh, instead of having a guy... I'm so sick of the news. I'm so sick of these town criers telling us the news. I just want to listen to a guy bullshit for an hour. Maybe some towns had that and they wanted that. Um... It's like we want we want a guy to just talk. We want a town crier. All he does is talk. Um, but I mean, I, one thing I know about myself is my stories suck. I've always known that about myself. It's still true today. It's always been true. It's just that I think I know how to talk. Like I know how to emphasize a story. But the actual stories to tell, like in, very interesting things have happened to me and I could tell interesting stories about them, but instead I'm like, there was this other kindergarten class that I forgot existed. Isn't that interesting? So it's, it's just that my stories kind of suck. 
even if the delivery is good, there's nothing interesting about them. Unless you're insane. And, you know, I am, you know, in my own way. So they're interesting to me. But sometimes people, you know, do. I hate when somebody else thinks my stories suck. Like I, th I still have this memory of being in high school or, you know, I was pretty young, like 15 or 16. And I'd gone to some hardcore show that I wasn't even interested in. And then I met up with some friends later. And there was the one lesbian girl from my high school. I was never friends with her, but she was a friend of a friend. So she'd be around sometimes. And I was telling the story about the show. I'd been at the show and here I am retelling it 20 years later. But uh, I was at the show and like I said, it was some local hardcore show, that type of thing. And this random Mexican guy off the street went to it. He obviously wasn't into any music remotely like this. He just was probably walking by drunk or something and was just like, oh, I'll, there's a concert. I'll go see it. And so he's never seen anything like this. He has no idea what a show what a show is like. And I remember there was this band playing, kind of like a metalcore band. Who knows who the fuck they were. And then they finished a song, and I remember the random Mexican guy off the street goes like, you guys are pretty good. Sorry about the crowd, man. Because it was just this small crowd of teenagers. It was just exactly what you'd expect of a local hardcore show. It, was, it wasn't like two people standing around. It was just like a small crowd of people. But this guy probably had no idea what a show is of you know a show like that is going to be like. He's probably imagining that like a a good well-attended show is like a true concert. A big crowd of people in a club or a stadium or something. But he just he sees that there's like a reasonable crowd for that type of show, but he's just like, "Oh, you guys are really you guys are you guys are pretty good." And he had a thick Mexican accent. He's just like, sorry about the crowd, man. Suddenly, uh, Mexican people are Irish. But I, I thought it was funny. Like the idea of a random Mexican guy going to some indie show, some hardcore show, and just like thinking the crowd was too small, thinking, the, thinking that it was a poor showing, just has no concept of where he just walked into. And I remember telling the friends that. I was like, oh, yeah, it was funny. This Mexican guy said that. And I remember the girl that I'm talking about, she was like, Nobody responded. It was one of those things where it was like clearly of no interest to anybody. But that girl responded and she was like, Does, isn't it weird when someone tells a story and it's so uninteresting? Really a bitchy thing to say. I, my feelings weren't even hurt. I was just like, wow, I can't believe you said that. Can't believe that I, I told what my... But she didn't understand the story either. I don't think she understood like the the funny part of the story is that a random Mexican guy wandered into a local hardcore show and spoke up. Uh, I remember that happened at that Fiesta Grande too. That, uh, that band Spaz used to put on like Fiesta Grande and it was just a bunch of power violence bands and that type of thing. And I had a live CD of it and some random Mexican guy said something in during that too. But that that happened at a show I went to where it was just like he, he just apologized for how small the crowd was. Like, you guys are really good. Like, sorry about the crowd. And nobody laughed. I did. But nobody at the show even really understood it either. 
This is a disconnect for me because that is funny. But everybody just seemed put off by it. Everybody just seemed weirded out by it. And I'm like, no, that's really funny. This guy has a lot of heart. This guy cares, but he also doesn't know where the fuck he is. And so this girl being like, is anybody, isn't it, you know, isn't it awkward when someone tells a story and it, it just sucks? It's like, no, the point isn't that it was an exciting, it's not that it was an exciting story filled with action and adventure. It's just funny that this guy wandered in off the street and said that. I'm still mad about it. All these years later, I'm still mad about it. Because the, the truth is, though, like, I don't even like people's interesting stories. Like, sometimes you'll, you'll see an interview with an old rockster. An old rockster. An old rock star. And their stories are like, oh, yeah, and then, like, we were in Germany, and then uh, I went in the dressing room, and there was Jimmy Page. And then he, he downed an entire bottle of Jack Daniels. And then you know who walked in? Mick Jagger. And he had Goldie Hawn on his arm. And uh, then we uh, we threw a piano out the window. All, all those just old rock star partying stories. The same for ordinary people. When it's like, oh yeah, then I went to you know Kathmandu. And then I went to Egypt and, you know, rode a camel past the pyramids. And those are interesting. That's an amazing thing to do. I'm not knocking that. I'm not knocking adventure. But those stories always kind of bore me. Oh, then I, I, I rode a camel past the, the pyramids. And then I, I saw Bill Murray on a horse. And he said, like, let's, let's climb the pyramids. And so we, I climbed the pyramids with Bill Murray. I don't know, I'm just making up stupid shit here. But it's like, that's going to be way less interesting to me than one time there was this kid in my uh, kindergarten class. And you know what his name was? John. And I'm like, <gasps> that to me is a good story. The, the weird little memories that hide in the crevices of your brain are what are interesting to me. Not because they're filled with adventure and suspense and all that. It's just, what's hiding in there? What's hiding in your brain? What is of odd significance to you that really shouldn't matter to you or anybody else? I'm always going to want to hear that. That's why, like, people I know, when they tell me about stories from school or kids they knew growing up, I'm all ears. And I remember it. I remember those stories. They're more interesting to me. And maybe that's why some of these old stories, just to tie it back, like maybe that's why some of these old fairy tales really have no point, too. Like, people just want to hear stories that don't have a point. Like, one time this happened. Oh, is there any kind of, like, plot twist? Is there anything to this? No, there was just a kid in my kindergarten class. Oh, one time he, he took his pencil and he, um... That's, that's even... That's too interesting. Like, anytime a story involves somebody actually doing something... It's too interesting. I, I like uninteresting stories. I just like hearing about the existence of something. 
One time in my, there was a kid in my first grade class, and his name was uh, Josh. And then he moved away, and I never saw him again. <gasps> that's, that's me. I react to stories like that. I'm like, <gasps> really? If it was like, oh, this kid named Josh, and like he, he took a pencil, and he stuck it in his eyeball, and pulled it out through his ear. And he climbed to the top of the building, and he flew away. I'd just be like, boring, boring. You know, that, that would be my reaction to that. Instead, a good story would just be like, there was a kid named Josh. I knew him for a year. He moved away. I never saw him again. That's Grimm's fairy tales. Grimm's fairy tales is just, there was a person and they moved away and I never saw them again. But I still remember them. That's, uh, that's a good fairy tale. That's real life. That's, re that's real talk. But someone's like willingness to share that stuff too. I like that. It's not just that the, the stories are, there's, there's no reason to tell those stories, but the fact that people do is that much more interesting. Like that's what's hiding in their brain. Something made them think of that. Something linked to that thought. Something prompted that. And if it didn't, that's even more interesting that it just came out of nowhere. I mean, I think about when my mom was dying. And some of the stuff she was saying, because, you know, she had necrotizing fasciitis. And uh, before I took her to the hospital for the final time and we determined that that's what she had, she was just laying there in these sort of fever dreams, just kind of babbling. It was really eerie. Like the last night that she was alive, the second to last night that she was alive, I was actually sitting where I am right now. I slept on the couch outside of her bedroom just to keep an eye on her. I didn't know what was wrong with her. It was just really weird. I mean, looking back, you know, I was a little more patient with it than I even could have been. Like, I had already taken her to the hospital once, and they said it was some sort of allergic reaction. But that, that last time, like, when she was just laying in bed sleeping but babbling and i mostly incomprehensible but it was non-stop all night because i barely slept i was just sleeping on the couch and i could hear her and she was just kind of mumbling and talking but it, it was almost like speaking in tongues but then when we took her to the hospital and she was there for i don't know not quite 24 hours, around 24 hours before she passed. She was actually talking, like she was saying things. But it was, it was really obscure stuff. One of the things she said to me the day she died was, um, just out of nowhere, she was like, there was a girl named, uh, you know, Jenny something su such at my high school. And then, you know, she got pregnant and then dropped out and they got married. Like, so she was talking about like some teenage couple and like, she would tell me a lot of stories about people she knew growing up. Like my mom was like, like what I'm saying here, where she would just tell me random stuff. Like it didn't have a story arc. It would just be like, oh yeah, there was this guy in my high school and he did this or he was like this. 
But despite that, like she had never told me the story about some classmate of hers. I don't even think it was a friend of hers or anyone she was close to, but just some girl who, when she was 16, got pregnant. This is the 1960s. And her and the dad just dropped out. They just dropped out of school and disappeared. It really was a story that was like, oh yeah, one day there was this kid and he moved away and I never saw him again. One day there was this girl and uh, she got pregnant and I never saw her again. She was in this deep fog, more than a fog. Like she was experiencing almost like a, a situational dementia, like the necrotizing fasciitis, the poisoning of the body, the the sepsis, all this stuff that was going on. You know, just war- you know, I don't want to say warped. It, it just kind of changed her brain, and uh, she just told me that out of nowhere. And then another thing she did was, like, pretty soon before she died, when she was in the intensive care unit, she was just talking about this these family friends we know, and they had been close to my sister, and they had multiple daughters, and she just, she name, she was naming all the daughters and their middle names and birthdays and stuff. And it was data. It was, like, trivia. It was... And she thought she was in their house, which was interesting. She's like, oh, I'm here, and, and there's this, and there's this, and, you know. Um, and then she just, like, named all of the daughters' full names, which I was surprised she even knew. I was surprised she knew the daughters' middle names. Like, my mom did care about that stuff. Like, she was the sort of person who remembered people's birthdays and just random facts about people she knew and met. But it was just weird in this state. It was just coming so freely. It wasn't... She didn't, she didn't even have to think about it. And, I, and she was right, too. It wasn't like it was nonsense. It was like all of this stuff that was stored in her brain was just coming out. And it wasn't... Um, like I said, it wasn't incorrect. Like, you would think somebody who's in that state, somebody who's basically possessed by an alien, you know, this this weird infection has taken over her entire life and her body and is killing her, you would think that it would just generate nonsense. You know, in the night before, she'd been babbling incoherently all through the night in her sleep. So you'd think that it would just be nonsense. It would just be like sounds or, you know, throwing words together like ad libs, mad libs, ad libs, mad libs. You'd think that that's what it would be. But no, instead she was dropping very real facts. And I found that so interesting that like this data that had been stored deep in her brain, once again, the crevices of the brain, it was just coming out freely and with flow. There was like a flow to it. She wasn't stuttering, she wasn't stammering. She wasn't struggling to speak or find her thoughts. Like, she wasn't herself. She didn't look like herself in her eyes. You know, it it wasn't my mom as I knew her. But all the information was stuff that my mom had absorbed over the years. And, you know, despite everything that was going on, despite how difficult it was, I found it so fascinating. And it wasn't scientific to me it wasn't like oh yeah when the body starts to die and you know someone's blood is poisoned and it goes to their brain because some evil infection is destroying them 
it um it causes you to like release all your thoughts you know there was something almost spiritual about it not almost there there was something spiritual to me about it i was just like all of this stuff is just coming out and they weren't big revelations or anything and she was still um she was still conscious enough on some level she would have moments where she she would say to me get me out of here and she kept trying to escape like they had to tie her to the a hospital bed and then she was getting out of her restraints and she would turn to me and it was very cute and funny despite the circumstances but guess what things can still be cute and funny when your mom is dying before your eyes and she would turn to me quietly like trying to say it so the doctors and nurses wouldn't hear but she would say hey i want to go home get me out of here but it wasn't her still it was still like she was still in that state but it was like this moment of clarity where she's like get me out of here hey hey like she wasn't talking to me the way she would talk to me as her son like i don't know that she fully knew who i was she did like at no point did i did she not know who i was um i think there was one point where she did think i was my dad because when I first went to the ICU unit, they had taken her from the main emergency room into ICU. And I had to wait a little while to see her while they were like t doing tests and getting her ready and stuff. And when I finally went into the ICU unit, she was like, her eyes got really big and she was like, I like, are, uh, are like Julie and the kids here? Are the kids here too? It, so I think for a moment she thought I was my dad. But other than that, she knew it was me. But the way she was asking me to get her out of the hospital and take her home and stuff, it was uh, it was like I was like a guard, or it, it was like I was somebody. I was like a sympathizer that she could convince to do what she wanted. Like it wasn't. It wasn't like it was conspiratorial. It was like, hey, hey, you, like, get me out of here. Like when they're not looking, we're gonna sneak out. It was almost like that, and it was kind of funny. I didn't find it traumatic. Like, you would think, oh, my God, like, your mom's dying in the hospital, begging you to take her home, and you can't. That must be traumatic. It really wasn't traumatic. It was just sort of like, this is kind of funny. It's not funny that my mom's dying. I'm having, I'm truly, I'm, uh, I'm not meeting my maker, but I certainly felt like I was meeting the maker. I'm staring at the brightest light and the, the darkest dark I've ever seen. I'm not having a good time. This isn't a party. I'm crying. I have no idea what's going to happen. I've never, you know, this is just getting into like, I haven't talked about my mom's passing for a while, but it's, um, I, I've never had a moment in my life, a, two-day period where I felt like so much was undetermined and up in the air. I kind of had a feeling she was going to die. But I never had a moment in my life where I was like, this is truly unpredictable. I have no idea what this is going to be. I have no idea what's on the other side of this. You have some experiences like that in life, but I've never had that. Aside from my own death 
when I'm a thousand one years old someday, you know, I don't know that you ever really encounter that except for like being with your most cherished loved one as they die. You really have no idea what's on the other side of that. That said, you know, it wasn't traumatic. It was just fascinating. It was like, I, I remember, I think I did an episode right after it happened, like a week after it happened. And I said, that's the most interesting thing that's ever happened. It's the most interesting thing that's ever happened to me. Not good interesting, not, I mean, obviously it's bad to lose my mom. I miss my mom dearly. It was inevitable. It was going to happen. It happened. And, uh, is truly the most interesting thing I've ever seen, I've ever experienced. Just fascinating. Everything about it. But what got me going on it was just that she was, like, the sort of anecdotes that she would randomly share in this fever state, this septic, I think, you know, sepsis. If you, if you experience sepsis, you're just screwed. You know, that just destroys your brain and body. And so, like, whatever was going on in her mind, this infection that had taken over her brain, just the, the most random anecdotes came out, things she had never talked about in my life, details that she remembered. And uh, I don't know, you never know what's going to come out of somebody. You never know what they're going to unload. You never know what, what, what sort of data and what sort of stories... You never know what's hiding in there. And, you know, there's an honesty, too, that comes out of people. Like, I remember at that time, I had grown a beard. And I'm not a beard guy. But I'd grown the longest beard. It wasn't long. It wasn't like a long hanging beard. But it was like the densest. It was like the fullest beard I've ever had. And I remember my mom, like, before she died, she was just like, I don't really like that. And she would never say that to me normally. She would never like say she doesn't like something I'm doing with my facial hair. But she was like, you know what? Get rid of it. She wasn't even mean about it. She was kind of like, yeah, I don't, I don't really like that. But it, it wasn't like part of some coherent conversation. She just randomly dropped that. She was randomly dropping, you know, random comments and bits of information. And there was one nurse too, like at one point when they were, they were going to wheel her off to surgery where she died the first time and then they sort of brought her back, but she wasn't conscious. And then I just told them, they asked me like, do you want us to try to resuscitate her? And I was like, what's that going to be? Like, like what's that going to entail? Like, is she going to have any quality of life? And they were like, probably not. Do you want us to resuscitate her? And then I said like, like, are they doing that now? And they're like, they're about to crush her rib cage, is what they said. I don't know if I've told anybody about that. Where after she died in surgery, and then they had her on oxygen, where her heart was still beating, and she was, her body was still alive. And they were like, they were going to do the, um, the electro thing. They were going to jump her back to life. And I was like, what does that entail? Because she'd always told me, you know, she doesn't want to live in any kind of diminished capacity. My whole life, she told me, like, pull the plug. 
if if I'm if my quality of life isn't going to be good, like just pull the plug. You know, do that for me. So I already knew that was her wish. But it's also my wish too in a way. Like her wish is my wish. And uh it was so weird though cuz there I was like, well they're going to what is resuscitating her mean? And they're like, "Oh, well, she's probably not going to live in a you know, she might not even be conscious again, you know. You know, if we even try to keep her alive, we're going to have to amputate one of her legs because that's where the, the the necrotizing fasciitis is. And I was just like, no, don't do it. And they're like, well, you better run in there because they're crushing her rib cage right now. Like they were, whatever it is they do to like jolt people back to life, they have to press down really hard. And I'm like, they're going to crush her rib cage just to keep her alive. And so I had to like run into the room and be like, don't do that. <laughs> I don't think I've ever mentioned that to anybody. But uh, think about having that that decision, you know. You know, there's so many things that you go through in life, and it's like literally making the decision, like, let this person die. Let this person who I love more than anything die. And m- literally a yes and yes or no question. Do you want us to let her try to live in this horrible state, or... You want to let her die, and I was like, "Oh, let her die." Very easy decision to make. I, you know, I remember, I remember, I, I had this brief moment where I was like, "I have to make a decision. This is hard." And then I was just like, "Oh no, uh, this is what she wanted for one, and it's just it's the right decision." And it's weird living in a world where like I'm somebody whose mom is dead, because you always knew people like that. And you never really knew what it meant. Like you'd hear, you'd work with somebody or meet somebody, you find out their parent died and you don't really know how to talk about it. It's always very grave. Even if they're older, it's always something that's kind of difficult territory to tread on. But there's a girl who works for me who like likes to make your mom jokes to everybody. And everybody she normally makes those jokes to is uh, they have a living mom. They call a living mom. And she does it so often, though, that it's just kind of like she's stuck on it. Like her go-to response is your mom. And there have been a couple times where she's accidentally said it to me. Like she knows my mom's dead, but she's been like, your mom. And I'm like, well, my mom's dead. And I kind of love that. It's it's the best way because like I'm not offended or hurt. But it's fun to kind of turn the tables and like... You know, she was telling me the other day, she was like, oh, yeah, like somebody told me, like, you can't really say that to him. Like, you can't say that to him. His mom's dead. But the fact that I'm so comfortable with it means it's kind of fun. Like, it's kind of fun that, like, there's politics to your mom jokes. It's kind of fun that there's there's this political element that revolves around death. Like, there's some people you can say that to and some you can't. Truth is, you can say it to me and it doesn't affect me. Like, there's some people where if their mom's dead and you said your mom to them, they'd be hurt. But they're, you know, they're of the world. You know, or or it's, or it's you know, or it happened at a bad time in your life or you weren't ready. It doesn't make you any better or worse of a person if you haven't come to terms with a parent's death. But living in a world where that's just a fact, just a fact, 
it's kind of if, if if it's oddly freeing, and maybe it's not even odd. I don't even think it's that odd. It's just freeing. Where, you know, I I get to be that person, and nobody really knows what that is. Like even if they've lost a parent, they don't know what my particular experience is with it. And as I've said many times before, um, you know, people with living parents in my experience, are more uncomfortable talking about a parent's death than people with a dead parent. Like, I'm insanely comfortable talking about it. And while I wanted to talk about it for maybe the first year after she died, I don't really talk about it much anymore. I don't. It doesn't come up. It's not on my mind all the time. Like, I think about my mom every day, but I don't, I don't need to talk about the experience. Whereas like when it first happened, I felt like I was like proselytizing. Like I felt like I, I, it was almost like I found God or something and I needed to share it. I was like this experience. It was, um, I felt like I was floating. It was like somebody who had taken a drug for the first time in their life and felt the need to tell everybody about, dude, I was so stoned the other day. It felt like this. It was almost like that. It was almost like, hey, I had this wild trip I need to tell you about. I had this crazy dream and I just got to tell you about it. But what I realized, though, is a lot of people who you know, haven't lost a parent, they're really uncomfortable. And I was that way, too, before my mom died, right up until the moment she died. Since I didn't know what that was, I worried about my mom all the time. I was more upset about my mom dying for the, what, 32 years, 33 years before she died than I was after she died. I was more scared and disturbed by the prospect of my mom dying than her actually dying. Because it was something that I didn't know. It was an unknown and in, in an inevitable unknown. And so I had no idea what was going to happen. What's that going to be? Is the world going to end? Am I going to lose my mind? Am I, am I going to explode? Am I going to spontaneously combust? Is my life going to suck forever? Is living the rest of my life without my mom, just does that mean my life's going to be sad forever? Is it going to suck? How dependent on her am I? You know, just different things. You don't know. You're scared. But then when they actually die, it's like there's this, it's, there's this freedom. And if you can accept it, you know, it's, you have this like new range of, of uh, this new range of motion in your brain. You have new crevices in your brain almost. Your mind is blown. I mean, it's not even new crevices in your brain. It's like your brain is just blown in a good way. It's like sudden enlightenment. And I remember saying this right after she died, but, you know, I would never claim to be enlightened. But the, for about a week after she died, I felt truly enlightened. I felt like I had gotten just some massive understanding of something. I felt like 
my mind and body were just glowing in one. I cried every day. I was so anxious and worried about practical things. Her estate, unpaid bills, my own bills. This, there's so many practical things. Cremation, how do I do this? And the most amazing thing, at the time it felt kind of cheap, like I'd been cheated or something. But she died and they, you know, they were like, you can spend as long as you want with her body. You know, her body was just in this ICU bed. And they're like, you can be alone with her. And they, all there was was a curtain. It's not like a private room, but there's just a curtain. And so they closed the curtain and I was like, thank you. I really only spent a few minutes. I just, I looked at her. I think I smelled her hair. I touched her hand. And then I was, I just told the nurse, I was like, I'm done. Because spending additional time in there, like, well, you'd think I would want to spend hours and be like, I don't want to, I'm never going to see my mom in material form again. I'm never going to see my mom in material form again. I better take this ex- as much time as I can to just look at her. I spent my entire life looking at my mom. I better spend an hour, two hours, five hours just looking at her because I'm never going to be able to do this again. Oddly, though, I just, I needed my little ritual of just a, a moment alone with her. And then I was just like, oh, I'm done. Just told the nurse I'm done. And then they hand you a packet and send you on your merry way. That was the most bizarre thing of all, really, is that like you think that there's this like process and procedure, and while there is a little bit, like they're gonna wheel her body to I don't I don't even know. They're gonna go store her body somewhere. They have what they do in the hospital. But as for me, they handed me this white packet and it had like recommendations for funeral homes and grief counseling and stuff. It was just like this packet with just a couple basically advertisements. And I was like, whoa. They literally send you on your merry way with a packet. Just got to hop in your car and drive home. And uh, at the time, I was kind of like, <laughs> it, it felt kind of insensitive or cheap or something. They just hand you a packet with advertising a couple funeral homes, grief counseling, whatever it is. And then you, you're just on your own. You're left to your own devices. At the time, I was kind of like, that's funny. That's ridiculous. When I look back on it, though, I'm like, that's amazing. That's exactly what it is. What else would they do? What else would they do except just there's nothing to do? You know, you, you head off, ride off, hop on your horse and ride away with your packet. Got a packet in your hand. But that's that's the best thing they could do in many ways. Like, you just got to sit with it. It's not, what else could they give you? What else could they do for you? Yeah, they could do more maybe, but what's that really going to do for you? I mean, it, it would have almost been better if they gave me no packet. And that's what's so insane about it, 
is it was like leaving the dentist's office or something. It was just like, oh, I'm just leaving the hospital. Oh yeah, I'm just I'm just leaving the hospital. Gonna go get in my car. Oh, the appointment is over. Oh, the appointment's over. I'm I'm just leaving and I'm gonna go get in my car. Amazing, amazing. Really is. It really is amazing that they just kind of, you know, untether you and just send you off into the world. And what was interesting about it is the, um, what do you call it? Like the chaplain? They have a religious figure in the hospital who comes around and talks to you. And in this case, it was a Buddhist lady. And it turned out she was my friend's godmother. I didn't know that at the time. But she was my friend's godmother. And uh, didn't didn't feel any super personal strong connection to this woman. But I remember like talking to her in this private room right before I made the decision to pull the plug. And uh I was just like, well, like, this is going to be financially really hard on me. And, you know, my mom is everything to me. So, uh, yeah, this is pretty rough. But I remember just, like, explaining my thought process to her. And she was basically like, "There's sounds like you're very clear. Like, you know, sounds like you, not that I have it all figured out, but she was just very much, I could tell her reaction was like, oh, because she's used to like consoling like people who are just have just lost it over this, and she was just kind of like, "Oh, there's nothing I can really do, based on what you're saying." And so all there is to to do is just roll with it. Just roll with it. But uh. Well, something else. There's something else I was going to say about it. Um, there's something else, like... Well, then, too, like, when I left, because, like, I was in a fog. Like, I, I did feel... Very, I felt very clear in many ways. No, I mean, this wasn't even me being in a fog or anything. Like, the ICU was in a different part of the built, the like, different wing of the hospital than the place where we came in. Like, you had to go up these stairs and, like, wind your way through a million hallways to go from the ER to the ICU. And so I had no idea where my car was. Like, my, I have a bad sense of direction, so I had no idea where my car was. And so I was like, shit, I've got to go find my car. And so I just kind of wandered until I found a stairway, and it led me down to the birthing center. It, it led me down to the maternity ward. And I was like, this is perfect. I got lost leaving the ICU where my mom died. And because I was lost, the first place I ended up was the maternity ward where new mothers are giving birth to new children. Just felt kind of perfect. And these people who were in the waiting room, these people who were at the maternity ward, would have seen me walk down the stairs and walk by. And... That's just an interesting dynamic. It's like, here's a young man who just lost his mom moments ago. And he's just walking by. 
it's kind of like this this hidden power or hidden secret. That's kind of how I felt about it. It didn't feel like I had this new hidden weakness. It felt like I had this new hidden power, this secret power where running errands, like I remember telling this story on here where I went to the grocery store and I was walking down a main area of the grocery store and this lady just stopped in front of me. And so I just went around her, not in a rude way, but I just, I was like, oh, I'm going to go around her. And then it turns out she had stopped because a lady in a wheelchair was coming down the aisle and I didn't see her. You know, people in grocery stores, they just stop all the time. So you go around them. My movements in the grocery store are very deliberate and, and quick. I don't like to be slowed down in the grocery store. So I went around her and the woman that stopped like turned to me and was like, oh, I was stopping. How rude of you. I was stopping for a woman in a wheelchair. And it was so funny because like in my mind, I didn't, I, I just, I laughed. I smiled and I just laughed. Because in my mind, I'm thinking, she thinks she's doing this noble deed. Because the thing is, she didn't even have to stop for the... It was very performative. It was like, I'm going to stop and let the person in the wheelchair go by. She didn't even have to do that. It wasn't even necessary. Like, the woman in the wheelchair had plenty of room. But it was just like this, this performative gesture of like, I'm going to do a good deed. And then you can tell someone's not doing a good deed. You can tell someone's intentions aren't pure when they then try to shame somebody else for not doing it. And that's what the woman tried to do to me. She like, turned to me, she's like, I was stopping for a woman in a wheelchair. And uh, like, how dare you, rude, rude. You know, she, she just did that shit. And I, I just kind of like smiled to myself and kept moving. Because I was like, she was just mean to a man who watched his mom die before his very eyes two days ago. And she thinks she's doing this great deed but she, she was actually just nasty to a person who just lost something invaluable. Who just saw something he's never seen that most people just fear more than anything. Something that breaks some people. Some people, their lives are ruined when their mom dies. He was never the same after his mom died. You know, it breaks people to go through that. But I wasn't offended. Because I was in this state, this week-long enlightenment, it was like all of the trivial things didn't matter to me. And I had that thought, you know, when I picked up her ashes, I was driving home and I had the urn just sitting on the passenger seat of my car. Where else am I going to put it? And I remember thinking, all these people see me as just another guy in another car. And they would honk at me. They, they didn't. But it's like they would think nothing of like honking at me, cutting me off, tailgating me, doing all the things people in cars do without realizing that there's a guy with his mom's ashes he just picked up sitting on the seat there. To them, I'm just another guy passing by. It's like me walking through the maternity ward, walking past the maternity ward moments after my mom died. I just look like another guy doing what people do. You don't know the secret here. I Even if someone wasn't honking at me or cutting me off, like just the idea that a car is next to me in the next lane over in traffic, and they have no idea that the car next to them is a person who just picked up his mom's ashes less than a week after his mom died. They just have no concept. Like They have, they have no idea of the energy in my car. 
They have no idea of the gravity in that car next to them. To them, it's just another mundane day. And there's a power to that. There's a power to kind of having that in your head. Like I was saying about your mom jokes. Like when that girl at work sometimes accidentally makes a your mom joke to me. So like, my mom's dead. How dare you? Oh my fucking fuck. You know, it's not, I'm, there's nothing to be upset about. It's, it's actually funnier because of it. Because I can turn the tables and be like, oh yeah, you know, she's dead. And people get really uncomfortable because what got me going on this is just that people get so uncomfortable when you are the one who's been through the trauma. Even though I don't feel traumatized, it is, it's a traumatic event, obviously. But you're the one who's been through that. So it should be you that finds it upsetting. Oh, I can't talk about my mom's death because it's too heavy. It's too upsetting. No. It's the people who haven't been through that that have a harder time with it. You know, and, and along with the decision to let her die, to pull the plug, another moment that was of obvious significance was when I had, I remember watching the nurse go over to this panel of wires and buttons and turn off the oxygen, turn off the whatever it's called, the stuff that was keeping her heart beating. I remember just like watching her turn that off and then you wait just a minute. And then you wait just a minute, the heart stops, the nurse goes over, checks her and is like, she's now officially dead. Like that moment, that actual moment where I watched her technically die and how incredible it was. Truly incredible. Like I watched her die right there. It's um, astonishing. And... Uh, You know, because it's it's something that is very it's it's very dramatized, and it it is dramatic. I mean, it's the most dramatic thing I've ever seen. It's real, but it was also dramatic in the sense that, like, this is the moment when something happened. This is the moment when my wonderful mom's heart just stopped and uh astonishing fascinating heavy massive but also just another moment in time just another little moment in time when that happened and unless someone's been through that i i guess what's weird is like i had uh you know, because I remember talking about this before where my mom had given me this book on Buddhism about a week before she died, and I was reading it continually. And I was reading it in the hospital the entire time, and when she went into surgery where she actually died, like that's that's really where she was gone. Even though they kind of brought her vitals back, she wasn't technically dead, 
When she died in surgery, that was really when she was dead. And I, I finished the book sitting there while she was in surgery, dying. Maybe died. Wouldn't surprise me if she died right when I closed the book. And then I started meditating. And I was actually able to do it. You'd think that my mind would be racing what's going to happen, what's going on in the surgery room, the operating room. Uh, you wouldn't think that you would have the clarity to sit there and actually get into a state of meditation, but I did. I was sitting in this chair that was low to the ground and kind of leans back, and I just sat there and I meditated. And I did, I actually got into a state of meditation. And then when... Uh, when she actually died, like died, you know, for the final time, the second and final time, just being able to sit by myself, like someone would think being by yourself must have been hard. It was in some ways, but it also meant that nobody else was interfering. It was the purest experience I've ever had where I, I just, I stood there. I was 100%. I didn't have to worry about anybody else that I was with. I had nobody else there. It was just me and my mom and some nurses kind of on, you know, behind a curtain 15 feet away. And uh, it was just such a pure, direct experience where like nobody else's emotions were at play. Nobody else was experiencing that right then and there. Um, so uh, I felt very privileged. I was, you know, I talked to my uncle, my dad's brother, and, you know, I think he kind of knew what was going to happen. Like I'd been updating him and then he, you know, he called me. And from the tone of his voice, I think he just knew. I think we all kind of knew she was going to die, even though it wasn't set in stone. There was there was a chance, like the, the hospital staff felt that the surgery might actually um, solve it, you know, to some degree, at least keep her alive in a some some sort of state that we could maintain. But I could kind of tell, like, you know, the family members I had talked to, we all kind of knew she was going to die. But I remember my uncle saying, you know, being there with his parents when they died was, you know, the greatest privilege that a um, a son can have. And I remember that just reverberating inside of me afterward. And I was like, that was, I, I was, there's no greater privilege than just me being there at that moment, getting to see that and not just getting to see that and be there and be a part of it, but also, um, being alone with it, which some people wouldn't be able to handle. And that's not nothing wrong with not being able to handle that. It's very understandable. You need family there. You need friends. You need somebody with you to support you. But in a maybe it's selfish. But the way I feel is that I was very lucky. And I'm glad that I was alone. Because I got, I got to really be there. Nothing else interfering. Nobody else's concerns, nobody else's thoughts. Truly just in the moment.
And I guess this does, I'm going to end this, but it does all kind of tie back to the fairy tales because before my mom died, she was reading my Grimm's fairy tales book. I had gotten it. I'd read about half of them and I just shown a couple to my mom. I got this old copy that had really cool drawings. I really, I got it for the drawings. It, the, the drawings in this copy of Grimm's fairy tales, they're like outsider art. They're really cool. And I had shown them to my mom. I'd shown the book to my mom. And so right before she died, like right before the necrotizing fasciitis hit and she was out of it, every night she would just kind of thumb through Grimm's fairy tales. I should see where that book is right now. I should see if I have it here somewhere. Um, is it in this cabinet? Yeah, it's right here. Yeah, this copy. I haven't, I haven't touched this book in a while. But uh, I should see which story. She made it about a third of the way through the book. And so she was actually reading Grimm's fairy tales right before she died. Might have been the last thing she read. The last story she... The next story up, because she bookmarked it, the next story up was Rumpelstiltskin. But the last one, I don't, and I don't know if she read them all, like, I don't know if she read them all, but she was going through it and reading some of them. But the last story in there bef that she may have read, I don't know if she did, but the last one she could have read was called The Knapsack, The Hat, and The Horn. And it goes, there were once three brothers who had fallen deeper and deeper into poverty, and at last their need was so great that they had to endure hunger and had nothing to eat or drink. Then they said, it cannot go on like this. We had better go into the world and seek our fortune. They therefore set out, and had already walked over many a long road and many a blade of grass, but had, not, had yet not met with good luck. One day they arrived in a great forest, and in the midst of it was a hill. And when they came nearer, they saw that the hill was all silver. Then spoke the eldest, Now I have found the good luck I wished for, and I desire nothing more. He took as much of the silver as he could possibly carry, and then turned back and went home again. But the two others said, We want something more from good luck than mere silver. And they did not touch it, but went onwards. After they had walked for two days longer without stopping, they came to a hill which was all gold. The second brother stopped took thought with himself, and was undecided. What shall I do, said he? Shall I take for myself so much of this gold that I have sufficient for all the rest of my life, or shall I go farther? At length he made a decision, and putting as much into his pockets as would go in, said farewell to his brother and went home. But the third said, Silver and gold do not move me. I will not renounce my chance of fortune. Perhaps something better still will be given me. He journeyed onwards, and when he had walked for three days, he came to a forest which was still larger than the one before, and never would come to an end, and as he found nothing to eat or to drink, he was all but exhausted. Then he climbed up a high tree to find out if up there he could see the end of the forest, but so far as his eye could pierce, he saw nothing but the tops of trees. Then he began to descend the tree again. But hunger tormented him, and he thought to himself, If I could but eat my fill once more. 
When he got down, he saw with astonishment a table beneath the tree rich, richly spread with food, the steam of which rose up to meet him. This time, he said, my wish has been fulfilled at the right moment. And without inquiring who had brought the food or who had cooked it, he approached the table and ate with enjoyment until he had appeased his hunger. When he was done, he thought, it would after all be a pity if the pretty little tablecloth were to be spoilt in the forest here, and folded it up tidily and put it in his pocket. Then he went onwards, and in the evening, when hunger once more returned to him, he wanted to make a trial of his little cloth and spread it out and said, I wish you to be covered with good cheer again. And scarcely had the wish crossed his lips than as many dishes with the most exquisite food on them stood on the table as there was room for. Now I perceive, said he, in what kitchen my cooking is done. You shall be dearer to me than the mountains of silver and gold. For he saw plainly that it was a wishing cloth. The cloth, however, was still not enough to enable him to sit down quietly at home. He preferred to wander about the world and pursue his fortune farther. One night he met, in a lonely wood, a dusty black charcoal burner who was burning charcoal there and had some potatoes by the fire on which he was going to make a meal. "'Good evening, Blackbird,' said the youth. "'How do you get on in your solitude?' "'One day is like the other. One day is like another.' replied the charcoal burner, and every night potatoes. Have you a mind to have some, and will you be my guest? Many thanks, replied the traveler. I won't rob you of your supper. You did not reckon on a visitor, but if you will put up with what I have, you shall have an invitation. Who is to prepare it for you, said the charcoal burner. I see that you have nothing with you, and there is no one within a two hours walk who could give you anything. And yet there shall be a meal, answered the youth and better than any you have ever tasted. Thereupon he brought his cloth out of his knapsack, spread it on the ground, and said, Little cloth, cover yourself. And instantly boiled meat and baked meat stood there, and as hot as if it had just come out of the kitchen. The charcoal burner stared with wide open eyes, but did not require much pressing. He fell to and thrust larger and larger mouthfuls into his black mouth, when they had eaten everything, the charcoal burner smiled contentedly and said, Listen, your tablecloth has my approval. It would be a fine thing for me in this forest, where no one ever cooks me anything good. I will propose an exchange to you. There in the corner hangs a soldier's knapsack, which is certainly old and shabby, but in it lie concealed wonderful powers. But as I no longer use it, I'll give it to you for the tablecloth. I must first know what these... Pow I, I, I must first know what these wonderful powers are, answered the youth. That I will tell you, replied the charcoal burner. Every time you tap it with your hand, a corporal, a corporal comes with six armed... I gotta get this right. That I will tell you, replied the charcoal burner. Every time you tap it with your hand, a corporal comes with six men armed from head to foot, and they do whatsoever you command them. As far as I'm concerned, said the youth, if nothing else can be done, we will exchange. And he gave the charcoal burner the cloth, took the knapsack from the hook, put it on, and bade farewell. When he had walked a while, he wished to make a trial of the magical powers of his knapsack and tapped it. Immediately the seven warriors stepped up to him, and the corporal said, What does my lord and ruler wish for? March with all speed to the charcoal burner, and demand my wishing cloth back.
They faced to the left, and it was not long before they brought what he required, and had taken it from the charcoal burner without asking many questions. The young man bade them retire, went onwards, and hoped fortune would shine yet more brightly on him. By sunset he came to another charcoal burner, who was making his supper ready by the fire. If you will eat some potatoes with salt, but with no dripping, come and sit down with me, said the sooty fellow. No, he replied, this time you shall be my guest. And he spread out his cloth, which was instantly covered with the most beautiful dishes. They ate and drank together and enjoyed themselves heartily. After the meal was over, the charcoal burner said, Up there on the shelf lies a little old worn-out hat which has strange properties. The moment someone puts it on and turns it round on his head, the cannons go off as if twelve were fired altogether, and they demolish everything so that no one can withstand them. The hat is of no use to me, and I will willingly give it, I will willingly give it for your tablecloth. That suits me very well, he answered, took the hat, put it on, and left his tablecloth behind him. But hardly had he walked away than he tapped on his knapsack and his soldiers had to fetch the cloth back again. One thing comes on the top of another, thought he, and I feel as if my luck had not yet come to an end. Neither had his thoughts deceived him. After he had walked on for the whole of one day, he came to a third charcoal burner, who, like the previous ones, invited him to potatoes without dripping. But he let him also dine with him from his wishing cloth, and the charcoal burner liked it so well that at last he offered him a horn for it, which had very different properties from those of the hat. The moment someone blew it, all the walls and fortifications fell down, and all towns and villages became ruins. For this he immediately gave the charcoal burner the cloth, but he afterwards sent his soldiers to demand it back again, so that at length he had the knapsack, hat, and horn, all three. Now, said he, I am a made man, and it is time for me to go home and see how my brothers are getting on. When he reached home, his brothers had built themselves a a handsome house with their silver and gold, and were living in clover. He went to see them, but as he came in a ragged coat, With his shabby hat on his head and his old knapsack on his back, they would not acknowledge him as their brother. They mocked and said, You give out that you are our brother, who despised silver and gold, and craved for something still better for himself. Such a person arrives in his carriage in full splendor, like a mighty king, not like a beggar. And they drove him out of doors. Then he fell into a rage and tapped his knapsack until a hundred and fifty men stood before him, armed from head to foot. He commanded them to surround his brother's house, and two of them were to take hazel sticks with them and beat the two insolent men until they knew who he was. A violent disturbance broke out. People ran together and wanted to lend the two some help in their need, but against the soldiers they could do nothing. News of this at length came to the king, who was very angry and ordered a captain to march out with his troop and drive this disturber of the peace out of town. But the man with the knapsack soon got a greater body of men together who repulsed the captain and his men so that they were forced to retire with bloody noses. The king said this vagabond is not brought to order yet and next day sent a still larger troop against him, but they could do even less. The youth set still more men against him, and in order to be done the sooner, he turned his hat twice around on his head, and heavy guns began to play, and the king's men were beaten and put to fight, put to flight. 
And now, said he, I will not make peace until the king gives me his daughter to wife, and I govern the whole kingdom in his name. He caused this to be announced to the king, and the latter said to his daughter, Necessity is a hard nut to crack. What else is there for me to do but what he desires? If I want peace and to keep the crown on my head, I must give you away. So the wedding was celebrated, but the king's daughter was vexed that her husband should be a common man who wore a shabby hat and put on an old knapsack. She longed to get rid of him, and night and day studied how she could accomplish this. Then she thought to herself, is it possible that his wonderful powers lie in the knapsack? And she feigned affection and caressed him, and when his heart was softened, she said, if you would but lay aside that horrid knapsack, it makes you look so ugly that I can't help being ashamed of you. Dear child, said he, this knapsack is my greatest treasure. As long as I have it, there is no power on earth that I'm afraid of. And he revealed to her the wonderful virtue with which it was endowed. Then she threw herself into into his arms as if she were going to kiss him, but cleverly took the knapsack off his shoulders and ran away with it. As soon as she was alone, she tapped it and commanded the warriors to seize their former master and take him out of the royal palace. They obeyed, and the false wife sent still more men after him, who were to drive him quite out of the country. Then he would have been ruined if he had not had the little hat, and hardly were his hands free before he turned it twice. Immediately the cannon began to thunder and demolished everything, and the king's daughter herself was forced to come and beg for mercy. As she entreated in such moving terms and promised to better her ways, he allowed himself to be persuaded and granted her peace. She behaved in a friendly manner to him and acted as if she loved him very much, and after some time managed so to befool him, that he confided to her that even if somehow, even if someone got the knapsack into his power, he could do nothing against him so long as the old hat was still his. When she knew the secret, she waited until he was asleep, and then she took the hat away from him and had it thrown out into the street. But the horn still remained to him, and in great anger he blew it with all his strength. Instantly all walls, fortifications, towns, and villages toppled down and crushed the king and his daughter to death. And had he not put down the horn and had blown just a little longer, everything would have been in ruins, and not one stone would have been left standing on another. Then no one opposed him any longer, and he made himself king of the whole country. May have been the last thing my mom read. I don't know. That's where the bookmark was. The bookmark was at the end of that story. I don't know if she read it or not. I'm not going to pretend to know. But uh, that one, you know, I'm not going to analyze it, but uh, that's a good one. I like that one. This land is mine. God gave this land to me. This brave, this golden land to me. And when the morning sun revealed. 
across her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free 